Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Interview episode, I Canum an Identity in Hellenistic Bactria with Dr. Rachel Mayers. Today I have with me Dr. Rachel Mayers, a professor of classics and Middle Eastern studies at the University of Reading. Dr. Mayers is one of the foremost experts of Hellenistic Central Asia, focusing primarily on identity and the interaction between Greek and non-Greek communities. She has published books on the subject, such as The Hellenistic Far East, Archaeology, Language, and Identity in Greek Central Asia, and served as editor of the recent The Greco-Bactrian and Indo-Greek World. She is also the founder of the Hellenistic Central Asia Research Network, and she has joined us to talk about the famous Greco-Bactrian city of Ikonum. First off, just let me say thank you so much for taking the time to uh, hop on the show. Hi, Derek. No problem. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. So to begin with, would you care to give my listeners a bit of your background and how it led to the study of the Greco-Bactrians and ancient Central Asia in general? Sure. Well, like almost everybody that works on ancient Central Asia, I started out working on something else. And the reason for this, of course, is that there are so few opportunities to to study ancient Central Asia in universities, schools, educational institutions in Europe, North America, in, in most of the world. It's something that's not part of regular curriculums. There are very few places where you can do a university degree program and things to do with Central Asia. I started out as an Egyptologist. My first degree was in Egyptology and it had a very heavy linguistic focus. I spent three years basically doing old, middle and late Egyptian and Coptic and also keeping up my Greek because I had Greek and Latin for, from school. And if, if listeners are familiar with Hellenistic Egypt, you'll know that one of the really fascinating things about it is that it's a bilingual, multicultural society that we have really fabulous evidence on. It's so rare to have this kind of evidence of how communities worked on a very intimate level from the ancient world. And this is because of papyri, written in a variety of languages. So with my linguistic background, what it made sense to do was to work on looking at Greek and Egyptian documents from Ptolemaic period Egypt. And I I worked with, with Dorothy Thompson at Cambridge, who was an amazing, amazing supervisor. Now, while I was looking at these topics in Hellenistic Egypt, I got thinking about, well, wouldn't it be fun to look at these topics in other places? Egypt may have so much great evidence on bilingualism, ethnic identity, ethnic communities and so forth. But we know the Hellenistic world as a whole must have been very diverse and had lots of cultures coming into contact with each other. And I I happened on a book, which I'm sure you're already familiar with, Derek, called The Greeks in Bactria and India by W.W. Tarn, which, as anybody who's picked it up can tell you, is very heavy going. It was first written in 1937, and it was, for a very long time, one of the few books, certainly the few books in English, about Hellenistic Central Asia. And I I happened to walk past it in my college library one day and thought, wow, I didn't know there were Greeks in Bactria in India. And I gradually ended up, while, while keeping a research interest in Egypt, gradually ended up moving towards looking at the same questions I I found fascinating in Egypt in Central Asia. Things to do with how large-scale immigration, especially Greek immigration in the Hellenistic period, brought about really interesting cultural contacts and developments of new hybrid forms of religious expression, art, interesting linguistic encounters, and so forth. 
And of course, again, as, as anybody who's broached this topic knows as well, the problem of evidence is not just a matter of Central Asia not having the wonderful papyrological record of Egypt. There's also a, a real dearth of scholarship, or certainly was before the last 20 years or so. Looking at things like the Greeks in Bactria and India, which is, well, I'm, I'm talking about the late 1990s here, that was still one of the main works that was available to look at this. And I, I looked at it and with the arrogance of youth, I thought, I can do better than this. I must be able to. And around about this time, this was when uh, Frank Holt's fantastic books on Hellenistic Bactria were starting to come out as well, which got me very excited in the field too. So long story short, I, I ended up with a wonderfully understanding supervisor switching and doing a, a PhD on Hellenistic Bactria instead of Hellenistic Egypt. Hellenistic Bactria is famously described as the land of a thousand cities, but the archaeological record is notoriously poor and has turned up relatively little to match the claims of our sources leading some to posit the idea of the Bactrian Mirage. The city of Iconum, however, remains the exception. Could you elaborate on the discovery of Iconum and its significance for our understanding of Greek settlement in Central Asia? Yeah, but this question of the, the Bactrian Mirage is an interesting one that's really persisted in the scholarly literature. The term was first come up with by a scholar called Alfred Fouché, who was the first director of the French archaeological delegation in Afghanistan, the Delegation Archaeologique Française en Afghanistan in the 1920s. And because of ancient historians, people like Strabo and Plutarch and, and so forth, scholars or people who were reading classical texts knew that there had been Greeks in Afghanistan and in Central Asia. Therefore, there must be some material remains of them. The problem was finding them in an area which was, for very valid reasons, quite hostile to outsiders. Certainly Afghanistan, which ended up being used as a buffer zone between the Russian Empire and the British Empire in India. They had a very wise objection to foreigners coming in and, and having much presence and influence in the country. So in the 1920s, when the French archaeological delegation under Fouché got into Afghanistan, this was the first modern archaeological attempt to explore the country, really. And Fouché was there as a representative of the French foreign minister as well. He was a diplomat as well as an archaeologist. And he was there because he wasn't British and he wasn't Russian. So the French were perceived by the, the Afghans as being a bit safer than having the, the two great regional imperial rivals in there. Fouché was a specialist in the art of India, and he also knew that there had to be some kind of material culture connection in Central Asia, which showed how classical influences, for want of a better word, came to be in the Buddhist art in particular of northern India, such as the art of Gandhara. So Fouché knew that there had to be this kind of missing link there. But he was very realistic about the chances of finding things in archaeological remains. So when he excavated at Balkh, which is the ancient city of Batra, near modern Mazari Sharif, he excavated there with his wife, Eugenie Bazan-Fouché, and colleagues, Afghan and French, for a period of about 18 months in the mid-1920s. And Fouché was very well aware that the chances of having any impact archaeologically on such a huge site were, were tiny, but his diplomatic bosses wanted him to persist. So it's from Fouché's disillusionment and really the miserable time he had in those, those 18 months at Balkh that we get this idea of the, the Bactria Mirage, that there's this idea that there was a Greek culture in Bactria, but we can't actually access it. You asked me to speak a bit about the discovery of, of Eichhorn. Well, this is related to it as well. Fouché sadly passed away long before the excavations at Eichhorn. He would have been delighted to see them, I think. 
But in the early 1800s already, foreigners, non-Afghans knew that there were Greek coins coming out of Bactria, northern Afghanistan, and they knew that there were some remains which might be promising to be remains of a Greco-Bactrian kingdom. It's worth saying that, of course, the people who lived in the neighbourhood of these sites had always known they were there. It's the old story of talking about European discovery of things when actually maybe we might want to highlight local knowledge and indigenous knowledge of places and things and history a little bit more here. But it's in the, the 1830s that you get imperial British adventurers like Wood who go up into the Oxus region of Afghanistan. And John Wood visited the site of Aichanum and recorded its local Uzbek name in the, the 1830s. His publication was in 1840. But it wasn't until the early 1960s that archaeological and scholarly attention returned to the area around Aichanum. In part, this is because of the general archaeological difficulties of working in remote areas in Afghanistan, the disillusionment of people such as Fouché. But it's also because the site of Aichanum is right on the border with what was then the Soviet Union and is now Tajikistan. So this was a highly sensitive area that the Afghan government, quite rightly, didn't really want foreigners traipsing around in, taking pictures and measuring things. So it was really under the initiative of the king of Afghanistan himself in the early 1960s, when he was shown a Corinthian capital from the site when he was hunting in the area, that the French archaeological delegation were again invited into this area to start excavations, which started in about 1964, I think was the, the first season, if, if I remember correctly. So the French archaeological delegation at this time was under the leadership of Paul Bernard, who had previously worked in Athens. And Bernard was the director of these excavations right up until 1978, when they had to be abandoned for obvious geopolitical reasons. There had been internal insecurity in Afghanistan, there had been a coup, and then, of course, the Soviets come in and the war begins there. But it's a real joy to read the early archaeological reports and articles on the discovery of this site from the early to mid-1960s, because you get such a sense of the excitement that the archaeologists were feeling going in there. Paul Bernard wrote about this. Louis Robert, who was a famous French epigrapher, particular specialism in Greek inscriptions, he wrote a, a wonderful article again in the early to mid-60s about the inscriptions that were coming out of Eichenum. And it's still thrilling to read these articles because you get a sense that these archaeologists know what they've discovered. It's something of Fouché's battery and mirage or, or missing link, which has actually come to life. For many archaeologists and historians, the discovery of Eichenum must have evoked ideas of an Athens in Afghanistan. But as it has been excavated, scholars have had to take a step back and reconsider their initial assessments. How does the city compare to other Hellenistic polis, whether we are talking about a royal capital like Antioch or Alexandria, or one of the many Greek settlements spread around the Mediterranean? Yeah, you bring up some interesting questions there, particularly in things like the use of the term polis, which can be quite a, a culturally loaded term. Literally, it's just the Greek word for city, of course. But as students and scholars of classical Greece will know, a polis is a bit more than a city. It's a city-state. It's a, a city which has particular forms of government and organisation, often democratic government. Uh, we think of Athens in the 5th century BC as, as being the classic example of this. And Iconum has always been very difficult to compare to other places. 
Part of this is because it remains really of the period, the only extensively excavated urban site that we have from the immediate region. And that's a problem. We can't argue anything about typicality. We can't compare it to Bactra. It was originally the Persian satrapal capital, would have been the capital of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom. We still don't know what's going on at Bactra, other than that the Greeks were there, which isn't very much of a conclusion, unfortunately. So comparing it to cities in the region cannot really be done, unfortunately. If we look at comparing it to cities elsewhere in the the Hellenistic world, I think we have to exercise caution, but we can still come up with some interesting thinking points, if not conclusions about where it fits in. We certainly can't compare it to Athens, although that is everybody's go-to classical city. I think an interesting comparison point for Eichenum can be Seleucid cities in Mesopotamia, like Seleucia and Babylon and Uruk, because of the material that we get from them. To say a little bit about what Eichenum is like as a city, before I go on to compare here, Eichenum is usually held to be a new foundation of the very late 4th or very early 3rd century BC. So it's probably not an Alexandria foundation, although there are people who do argue that. And it is in an area which had thousands of years of documented human habitation. There was an extensive field survey done by Jean-Claude Gardin and other members of the French archaeological delegation and Bertie Lyonnais in the 1970s which revealed that the area, the agricultural area around Eichenum had been irrigated using long canals way back into the Bronze Age. There's a site near Eichenum called Shortagai, which was an outpost of the Indus civilization. As well as agricultural riches, the area around Eichenum has access up into the mountains of Badakhshan, which are the source of lapis lazuli and other items which were traded over very long distances in the 3rd, 2nd millennia BC. So Eichenum, while it may be a new foundation, this is not new habitation on this site. My own view is that we should be looking a bit more carefully at the Achaemenid period in the Eichenum area. There's a site normally known in French as the Villerange, the Round Town on the river just to the north of Eichenum, which is fortified and was probably a Achaemenid era settlement in the area. I wouldn't be terribly surprised, although unfortunately we cannot go in and dig it now, I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out that there had been an Achaemenid settlement on the site of Eichenum itself. So what I'm getting at here is that Eichenum is both a new colonial foundation and deeply rooted in the history, the culture, the economic processes of the area in which it is. And that's why Mesopotamia is such an interesting place to think with, because you've got things like new settlements like Seleucia on the Tigris, but you also have cities such as Babylon, which maintain a great deal of their original character. They've been there for millennia, but they also have subtle changes to the urban fabric and the organisation of the city, which come from the Hellenistic period and the Greek conquest of it. For example, there's a theatre built inside the walls of Babylon, which is known quite hilariously in Babylonians as the Beat Tamati, the place of observation, because there's no indigenous name for a theatre, which is a Greek word. And if we look at Eichenum, the old cliche about it is that it's a city that has a lot of very Greek features and a lot of very not Greek features. There are some things which are just over the top, in your face Greek, like the gymnasium and the theatre. These are really culture specific institutions 
which other cultures like the Babylonians had to find a way of understanding because it was something new to them. But then you get things at Iconum, such as the temples and the domestic architecture, which are very clearly rooted in long-standing local history and traditions. So all in all, I would say that we, we cannot really compare Iconum to other cities in the Hellenistic world in terms of making assumptions about its organisation or society or political organisation on those basis. But I think it's helpful to look at other Hellenistic cities to think about structures, to think about how people created communities from a very diverse set of personal origins, views about the world, cultural influences, stylistic influences and, and so forth. Identity is something that I always have found fascinating when it comes to the study of the Hellenistic kingdoms of Egypt and the Near East, and the Greco-Bactrians are no exception to this. It's very tempting to try and point to inscriptions or gymnasiums as proof of Greekness, or for lack of a better term, thriving in Central Asia. However, what are some of the challenges or pitfalls that can be faced when we try to label aspects of identity as either being Greek or Bactrian or Indian? I was talking about this to one of my classes the other day, and we, we were talking about classical archaeological sites. And I got the students to examine what they were wearing, what they were holding, what way they'd done their hair, whether they had tattoos or piercings and so forth. And I said, well, applying the criteria that you are to looking at these archaeological sites, apply them to yourself. Just because I'm holding a bag which is made of a pattern fabric from India doesn't make me Indian. Just because I'm wearing a jacket from a Japanese clothing company doesn't make me Japanese. There's the problem that we have when we look at material culture that we've got to think about several different things about why it is the way it is. There's the ultimate source of origin of, say, stylistic influence. But then there's the question of how do these things relate to how people understand who they are and their place in the world? And this brings us back to the history of archaeology in Central Asia. And in particular, the history of looking for the Greeks, people like Alfred Fouché in the early 20th century. He knew that looking for the Greeks was kind of a silly thing to do, but he was forced into excavating at particular sites because of expectations that people in Europe had about what might be found. When people went looking for the Greeks in Central Asia, how did they think they would know when they found them? And the answer, of course, is that people were expecting to see things which are totemic expressions of Greekness or classical identity and belonging in Europe. Things like columns, Corinthian capitals, Greek inscriptions, statues of people wearing draped garments. All of these things were taken as being indicia of Greekness. We have found the Greeks. Look, we've got a Corinthian capital. And indeed, that's exactly what happened in the early years of Iconum. It was the discovery of things which looked overtly Greek, which brought renewed archaeological and scholarly interest in the site. In the early years of excavation there, you get a sense from the excavators of the real excitement of having found something which is really intrusively, exotically Greek in Central Asia. There is a lot of emphasis on the publications on this is just like something from Athens. This is just like something from Rhodes. But as time goes on and the, the archaeologists, people such as Paul Bernard, have more time to reflect, they began to think a bit more about what this actually means. What does this say about the identity of the people in the city? How do we know how they conceived of this? And I think really 
especially with the site of Eichanum, this question of how we relate things to people and how we relate the form of things to people's notion of themselves and, and their communities. This has become and continues to be the overriding question in discussing Eichanum. If I think in particular of the recent really exciting work that Lorian Martinez-Seb has been doing on the temple and the statue at Eichanum, she gave a great online presentation that I went to a couple of months ago about this. She is reassessing how we look at things like statues. We can look at a statue and say, well, this looks like a Greek Zeus. But it's very important to bear in mind that the people who looked at this, who worshipped it, who walked by it every day, may have had very different concepts about what this was in their world. They could have called it by different names. And what's most important, it could have had a very flexible identity to people. I think that there was a problem in past analyses of Eichenum, of an idea of rigidly separating out the Greek from the not Greek. And that, that's not how cities work. That's not how communities work. There's a way that you can consider all of this together that makes sense, because it did make sense to the people who lived among it and who created this constellation of different artistic and cultural influences. Leading off from the previous questions, are there any particular features or elements of Eichenum that exemplifies the ambiguity of identity? I think in particular, if we look at religious expression at Eichenum, that's somewhere where we can really see perhaps not so much an ambiguous identity as an identity that can be quite fluid or constructed in ways that we might not expect. And again, I recommend to the listeners, do check out Lorian Martinez-Seb's recent articles about Eichenum, and you, you can see some of the interesting scholarship she's been doing on this. If we look at religious expression, we get a lot of forms of things that look obviously Greek to us, such as the statue in the temple, which could have been read and understood in, in very different ways. I think what a lot of people, scholars working on this material at the moment, are gradually coming to an agreement that the material at Eichenum is something greater than the sum of its parts. It's not just a collection of diverse influences. What it is, is it's the product of a community which is creating something new. They are creating something, an identity, a set, a cultural toolkit, which speaks to their own needs, their own background, their own conception of who they are, their own identity, and that is meaningful in and of itself. I've used the term battery and koine to talk about this in a few places. And I think really that's the responsibility that we have as scholars looking at this. We've got to focus on making this make sense because there were people to whom it did make sense. Labels are, are a tricky thing here. So we have a tendency as, as scholars, as modern observers, to want to label something Greek or Bactrian or Egyptian or Syrian or whatever the case may be. And there are some places in the ancient world, especially in written evidence, where we have the wonderful luxury that people have told us what they think about who they are. They've applied names to themselves. If you even think about the later living under the Roman Empire period, Syrian writer Lucian, he says in one of his writings, I am a Syrian. There we go. It's nice. It's straightforward. It's wonderful. He may be writing in Greek, but he says I'm Syrian. Egypt is a tricky point of comparison, and I, I struggle with this a lot because I did start out looking at material from Egypt, and it's just such a wonderful resource that the temptation is to try and fill in the gaps from Egyptian material. And the papyrological evidence from Egypt in particular can make you think about identity in particular ways. So to give an example, 
my former supervisor, Dorothy Thompson, along with her colleague, Willie Clarissa, in about 2006, published a selection, an edition with, with commentary and historical essays on the Ptolemaic period census of Egypt, which is a wonderful collection. I really recommend people have a look at that. And what they've done is they've collected all of the surviving census documents, which are not dissimilar to the kind of information people collect in census documents in the present day. You get name, age, gender, profession. But one of the the fascinating things that Ptolemaic census documents include is something that they call an ethnos. Now, ethnos, of course, is a Greek word which is related to our modern name, ethnic. But it's not an ethnic identity. And that becomes very clear when you look at the content of these census documents. So the available ethnoi that a person could be slotted into were basically divided hierarchically between people who were Greek Hellenes and people who weren't Hellenes. But being a Hellene wasn't the same thing as being a Greek. There were lots of things that meant you could count as a Hellene. Uh, Clarissa and Thompson called them tax Hellenes because the census is about taxation and this is primarily a fiscal document. So, for example, Jews are tax Hellenes. People who are called Persian, but probably aren't Persian, also have a privileged tax status. So do Arabs. People in particular professions can be tax Hellenes, such as teachers, gymnasium workers. And it becomes quite clear that, especially if we look at the names of the people in the census and their family structure and who they're married to and which language their census return is is recorded in, it turns out that this category of tax Hellene, this being a Greek by, by ethnos, doesn't necessarily have anything very much to do with who a person's parents are, what language they speak, where they come from, who they marry, what cultural behaviours they may demonstrate. But it is a meaningful category. It's a category that is, is privileged, you pay a preferential tax rate, and it is, when it comes down to it, sort of vaguely connected to being connected with Greek immigrants to the country, but it's not what we think of as a modern ethnic group. Now, when we come to Bactria, of course, we don't have surviving census documents. It would be amazing if we did, but we do not. The climate is not the same in Bactria as it is in Egypt. We don't have as many written documents. So I would say with looking at things like comparisons from Egypt and other places, The best we can do is get a sense that ethnicity and identity and names that people give themselves and names that other people give them are very specific to individual context. So we've got to be alert to the fact that, well, for a start, people categorise themselves in, in different ways. There may be different situations in which you claim one identity more strongly than others. There may be other situations in which things are completely irrelevant. For example, just off the top of my head, I went to the doctor the other day to get my flu vaccine. And in the waiting room, they called me in as Ms. Mares because my doctorate is not relevant in that context of the doctor's office. Only a medical doctor is doctor in that case. Whereas in a professional context, it would be doctor, professor, or in most cases in my department, we just use first names. So everything is about identity and who you are and profession and ethnic identity is very context specific. And I suppose I'm sort of hedging my way towards saying that I wish we could figure more of this out for Bactria, but we cannot in the same way. We've just got to be aware of the limitations of our evidence and also be aware of the limitations of our reasoning and remain open to to new ways of thinking about things.
Despite its grandiose nature, the city was abandoned sometime during the mid-2nd century due to nomadic attacks, internal struggles, or perhaps both. Cities across history have experienced tumultuous events like sacks and sieges, but Iconum was never properly reoccupied following the great fire that tore through the city during the invasion of the UHC nomads. In a general sense, how does Iconum fit in the context of ancient Afghanistan? Does its abandonment suggest that there was a disconnect between the Greek model of urbanization and the patterns of the Bactrian peoples, or is there perhaps a better way of interpreting why it ultimately failed? Again, I really want to know more about what the other cities in Bactria and adjacent regions looked like. But I think the quite spectacular abandonment of Eichhörnum, and it's really obvious in the archaeological record, you look at the remains that come from this particular period when it was, well, as you pointed out, nobody's entirely sure what the cause of it was. This is most definitely a city that is over. But the dramatic nature of that detracts somewhat from the fact that life goes on in the area around it. This regional archaeological survey in the 1970s came up with really long-term maintenance of canals, agricultural occupation. The city itself is somewhat occupied. There are limited archaeological remains of things like later burials made into surviving mounds of buildings at Eichenum. So people knew the site was there. It wasn't completely abandoned. One might be tempted to say that this is some kind of cultural anti-Greekness thing, but I think it would be more productive to look at practical reasons for this. For example, at Eichenum, Although the city site itself looks strategic at the junction of the two rivers, it's kind of a tricky place to live. The, the banks of the rivers are quite high around the city. That, that's great. It means your enemies can't sail up and jump over your wall and attack you. But it does mean that getting water in is a bit annoying. There's a long water channel that goes along the length of the main street. And if that's silted up, if that's not working, it, it's a difficult place to live. It doesn't make an awful lot of sense. There's also in the upper part of the city, which wasn't subject to as much archaeological excavation, unfortunately, before it had to be abandoned. People are possibly doing things up there as well. It's a strategic site. It never completely falls into abandonment and forgetting, really. You can see that the influence of the Greeks and Bactria carries on culturally, linguistically for quite a long time. For example, if we look at temples in Bactria, sites in Bactria, from later periods, from the turn of the, the millennium through into the Kushan Empire in the 2nd, 3rd century AD. There are lots of lingering influences, things like iconography of gods, which they're calling by different names now, of course, but there's a recognisable continuity in things. They're still using the same forms of, uh, especially indigenous architecture, that they're using at Eichenum, that carries on. You get the occasional column popping up on things. But by this point, and I think possibly even in the Greco-Bactrian period as well, it's being understood as something local. This is what we do here. This is familiar. This is what we do. For listeners who are interested in going a little bit further into history, it's really only in about the second, third century AD that we get any kind of rejection of Greekness in the region. And what there is, is controversial. It comes from Bactrian language inscriptions, which are written in the Greek alphabet, because that was the available medium of literacy in the region at that time, under kings like Kanishka and so forth, who, who talk about putting away the Greekness, which can be seen as, has been argued by some to be some kind of cultural revolution. And indeed, Kanishka, the Kushan emperor, he has coins which have the Bactrian language and Greek script on them. 
And he uses iconography, which is recognisably Greek iconography, for example, the sun god Helios. And in early issues, Helios is captioned Helios in Greek. And in later issues, it's being replaced with Mithra, the local Iranian name. But the iconography remains exactly the same. In your opinion, why does Iconum, a city which has virtually no concrete documentation in the literary accounts, remain the only Greek city with significant archaeological remains ever properly discovered in the region? Do you believe that there is another Iconum or something similar waiting out there for researchers to discover? So the classic answer to this would be everything is buried under other stuff. If you look at most major city archaeological sites in the region of Central Asia, there's a very common pattern, and I'm, I'm talking cliche common pattern here. People going back to the Bronze Age, they build their cities in the same site over and over and over and over and over again until the Mongols come along, at which point it gets abandoned. And what you're left with is a huge tell. Now, scholars uh, such as Katie Campbell at Cambridge are overturning this very cliche, simplistic model of what happens at the Mongol conquest archaeologically. But it does remain the case that most big urban sites that we know were centre of Greek occupation, were garrisoned by Alexander, etc., in Central Asia are underneath the remains of later cities. Balkh is a classical example. Herat may be similar. Samarkand, the, the site of Afrasiab, which is outside what's now the, the modern and medieval city. But there is an awful lot of layers of occupation there. And excavating a big tail site like that is time consuming, it's expensive, it's hugely difficult to do. I think probably the closest that we've got to being able to do useful things with this were some of the major Soviet era archaeological projects in Central Asia, where there was a tendency to do big they call them pluridisciplinary expeditions. The site of Termez is a good example of this, where they would have archaeologists, they would have geologists, they would have folklorists, they would have researchers on a really wide range of topics, all exploring a single site. It was very holistic. And perhaps there's something in the, the Soviet era archaeological expeditions that, that should be gone back to. But Unfortunately, so much of this just comes down to money and time and resources and the practicalities of it. And in some ways, we're no better off than Alfred Fouché was in the mid-1920s when he, he looked at Balkh and knew that it wasn't doable with a small team, but was forced to soldier on anyway. Is there another Eichelum out there? Well, there's nothing exactly like it because Eichelum is unusual as a in the form we have at really one period site, it has an occupation of about 150 years, a bit more, give or take. And that means that it was relatively straightforward to excavate and to find out what was going on. It's not to say there weren't challenges, but you weren't digging through metres upon metres of fill to get to this. I don't think we're going to find another one of those because it would have been pretty obvious by now, unfortunately. But I think really that there's going to be so much more exciting work done in this region in the future. And also a lot more to be got out of previous excavations. The Eichenum excavations, they were forced to abandon them in the late 1970s, very sadly. The DAFA was wound down in 1982, couldn't function in Kabul anymore. They did subsequently go back in in the early 2000s, which was fantastic. They are still trying to operate now, which is very difficult for everyone. But the material from Eichenum was never fully published, and it's in the process of being published. The latest volume of Eichenum reports on the domestic architecture was edited by Guy Lukuo and came out in 2013. 
and Gloria Martinez Sev is working on more new publications of the Ikonum material from the old excavations, which will be really exciting when, when they come out. I, I can't wait to see those. I believe that this is an excellent place to end our discussion. And once again, let me just say thank you on behalf of myself and my listeners for coming onto the podcast. But before we go, are there any upcoming projects or books coming down the pipeline or any materials or websites you'd like to share with our listeners? For people who'd like to find out more about Hellenistic Central Asia, which is a a real watch this space kind of feel. There are always exciting new things going on because there's so much we don't know and there's so many gaps to be filled in. Do check out the website of the Hellenistic Central Asia Research Network, which is www.batria.org. That has bibliographies on Hellenistic Central Asia, which I usually update annually. I, I wasn't able to get round to it last year because of COVID, but I'm going to do a bumper edition this December. So you can find full bibliographies on Hellenistic Central Asia there for following things up. There is also a mailing list that you can link to. And the HCAR network has been doing a series of online Zoom talks, which have been a lot of fun. My co-committee members on the network are Gunvra Lindstrom, Ladislav Stangsho, Melinda Hu and Lauren Morris. And all of us have been having a lot of fun doing that. And we'd, we'd love to have more people coming along to the talks. I also blog, along with my colleagues, Sam Agad and Catherine Bluan on everydayorientalism.wordpress.com. And that's more for content to do with Egyptology, history of archaeology and colonialism. So you can check out my work on there as well. I'll make sure to include all of these resources in the show notes on my website. And listeners, I do encourage you to check it out because it's very helpful for learning more about everything related to this topic. But for the rest of you, thank you so much for listening to the Hellenistic Age podcast. <laughs>